Welcome to The Curb Cut Effect. In higher education and in the world of business, digital accessibility and web development are often thought of as existing in two separate spheres. If accessibility is thought about at all, it's as an afterthought. And it's often done by different professionals. What's really exciting about today's guest, Jason Withrow, is that he is an expert in both fields and really sees the two as inseparable. He's brought this to his professional work and also to his teaching at the Washtenaw Community College in Michigan, where he teaches, among other things, web development, but inside web development is covering topics in accessibility. So today I'm really excited to talk to Jason about his professional work and his uh, pedagogical work and the way that he integrates accessibility into all of the other work that he does. Without further ado, this is Jason Withrow. Hi, Jason. Hi there. Really glad to be here. So glad we, we can talk. So I guess my first question is, how would you describe digital accessibility to someone who isn't familiar with, with what that is? That's a really good question. Uh, I would say that, you know, in the digital space, it's, it's all about making sure that everyone coming to a website or using their social media app, whatever it happens to be, can use those successfully, can do what they need to do, regardless of what challenges they might be facing and, you know, both uh, longer term and, you know, environmental or situational ones. Awesome. And, and what uh, drew you to um, accessibility in the first place? So I started off in human-computer interaction. And so that's, you know, as the name suggests, it's all about that intersection of people of humanity and machines, computers. And when I was studying that in the late 90s, Accessibility wasn't as prominent as it is now. And I think that essentially we weren't looking at all of humanity in the human-computer interaction. We were focusing on certain parts of that group more than others. And so in my studies, it really wasn't a huge focus. And just with time and with more knowledge, I realized that if we really want to do uh, human-computer interaction properly, we need to be looking at everyone. And so that brings in accessibility into the fold. Yeah. And in the 20-odd years since you started looking at accessibility, um, the, the world of, of, you know, of apps, of websites, et cetera, it's changed so much, um, as we've all witnessed. And I'm wondering if you could speak to the ways that those changes may have both a positive and negative impact on usability and accessibility. What would you say are some um, exciting, exciting new designs and some really troubling new, newer designs that, that you've observed in your uh, years of working on this? I would say that the biggest positive over those years was the emergence of standards. And this is largely, you know, through the W3C, and uh, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, as well as various government efforts like, you know, the U.S. government and governments around the world to also codify standards. That's, that's huge. It's very, very important to have a set of rules that people can follow. So that was a 
a really positive thing. Where we end up, I think, running into more choppy waters and difficulties is that as technology advances, the people that are doing those advancements that are creating things don't necessarily have a training or an awareness of accessibility, so they don't they don't think about it. A good example of this is or are the JavaScript frameworks that are very commonly used these days, such as React or Angular, or there's a variety of other ones. Oftentimes, accessibility, at least in the early days of those frameworks, was kind of an afterthought because the focus was on these technologies and and creating and doing something differently on the web. And it, it just took time for those frameworks to finally incorporate accessibility. And, and we're still at a point where if, if attention is not paid to accessibility, then you end up with an inaccessible application. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if you could speak to how you teach accessibility as, you know, as a part of your web development class. I think that's really neat. And like, when did you start doing that? And have, have you been surprised by reactions of, of students at any point? to the inclusion of accessibility in the curriculum. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering what that experience has been like. I think that the most notable reaction that students have to learning about accessibility beyond just that they weren't thinking about this before, that this was something that was really broadening their horizons and making them see the world differently and interpret things differently. Beyond, Beyond that, I've had students say to me that that there was almost an ethical or a moral imperative uh, that was coming through in the in the class material that that this was simply and fundamentally the right thing to do and it was right at a level that we ordinarily don't get to because making an application that is somewhat usable more usable is not as impactful as giving access to content and functionality that was impossible before. That's an even bigger improvement because an inaccessible system, oftentimes people cannot even hear or experience or use the system in any way, shape, or form. And to make that accessible to them is a much bigger gain than, again, taking something that was moderately usable and making it more usable. And at just a fundamental human level, this is about doing what is right. Uh, and and that, that's not necessarily, uh, well, I guess I would say that in web design classes, you're usually not discussing morality and ethics, but you end up, uh, up kind of going there when you're talking about, about this. And of course, there's legal ramifications that uh, you don't have necessarily with other things that you're, that you're covering. And so, yeah, this is a part of our curriculum that I think does have people thinking more deeply and more in a more profound way. And that's a good thing because if if nothing else, I tell my students that they will leave my classes seeing the world differently. You know, they may not really love doing the things that, that, that they're learning. They may not want to make it a 40-hour-a-week job, but I can guarantee that at the end of the semester that they will see the world differently. And, and, you know, and that's, I believe, ultimately a positive. Yeah. And as the name of this podcast would suggest, I think one thing that, um, you know, we're, we're really interested in is, you know, kind of really practical 
advantages in, in thinking about about accessibility more broadly and what um, uh, accommodations for more marginal cases might offer, you know, more more normative cases. And I'm wondering if if you think that that type of principle applies in the digital space, and and if so, if there are some examples that come to mind of, you know, hey, this is something that we we figured out from working on you know, accessibility for this specific disability group, but it ended up having a lot of other benefits that have been really exciting to some other people as well. And it's just sort of a, a totally a net positive for everybody. Sure. One of the things that I tell my students is that it is absolutely worth it to spend the extra 10 minutes to make whatever it is that you're creating accessible because people will benefit from those changes in the code, let's say, in ways that you can't even imagine, that they will leverage that benefit in ways that are just something you can't even predict. One example that I'm, that I'm thinking of was an, an application that I, I worked on a number of years ago. It was a scheduling system for people that were uh, interpreters at a hospital, and they had a lot of screens and a lot of just a lot of of inputs that were well put it this way it was a great way to develop carpal tunnel uh using that system because you would move the mouse i don't (laughs) even know 50 times and click 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 it's very involved and i ended up implementing shortcuts for them access keys and i know those are not necessarily a very popular you know, thing to do, but it was allowing them these keyboard shortcuts that would save them some degree of carpal tunnel inducing repetitive hand motion because they were able to leverage the keyboard and not just have to use the mouse all the time. So that was something that was just a matter of leveraging something that began for accessibility purposes and leveraging it sort of outside of that space more broadly and kind of, again, a universal design idea of let's just make this work for a variety of people and and situations. And so I I hope that I was able to decrease the the incidence or the prevalence of carpal tunnel amongst those those staff people because they complained a lot about how, how they had to click about 50 times to do something. So in your professional work, what types of institutions or, or individuals do you observe reaching out to you most frequently about accessibility? Do you think accessibility is something that gets the same concern in, let's say, business as it does in nonprofits, as it does in the government? Or would you say at this point there's there's sort of an asymmetry in the attention paid toward accessibility in, in different sectors? I think that even now, at this point in, in time, we still have a very asymmetrical, you know, sort of balance, if you will, of, of interest in this. And so for me, when a business reaches out to me about this, it's often because even though that business is not, let's say, directly related to the government or to education, some part of what they do ends up intersecting with education or government, and that is how they get informed that they must be accessible. So one example of this, a client that I do some work for is in the photography business for for graduations. And 
what they're doing these sessions for are usually like college graduations, high school graduations. And they were being told by some of the colleges that they work with that if they were not accessible, that they would no longer be working with that college. So the impetus for change, that driving force was not within this photography business. It was coming from their own clients that was, you know, pushing them to make things accessible. And, and in that case, it was really just trying to get to a point where the college was, was happy with the level of accessibility so that they could continue working with them. And so even though you don't think, well, that's interesting, you know, that's kind of a vendor of the college. It, it is ripple sort of rippling out from the centers of, you know, government and education and it's touching other businesses because of that. But I think on their own, I don't know that that business would have ever short of being sued by someone. I don't think that they would have just independently gotten to thinking about accessibility because the person who runs that business, I don't know that it's even something he'd ever thought about before. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know extrapolation into the future is always is always tricky, but I mean, you've you've been in this space for for a lot longer than I have, <laughs> and I'm I'm sort of curious what what trends do you see going forward? Like, what what do you think the landscape of accessibility might be in in ten years? Where do you see this all leading? Well, um, I mean, I certainly see the standards still evolving. You know, we we always are seeing periodically updates to the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines to address things that pertain to, for example, like multi-touch interactions on a phone would be an example. So I I do see that those are going to continue to evolve. I think that we have a lot of challenges ahead of us because as we move into technologies like augmented reality and virtual reality, I'm really wondering uh, how that's going to work out from an accessibility perspective. You know, if we end up at some point in the future with a direct neural link into the brain, then I think we have maybe some really interesting things we could do with that. You know, there's upsides and downsides uh, to that that type of, of concept, but if at some point we have that technology, then I think we would be able to do some pretty amazing things that are even being done right now as far as, you know, neural connections for individuals who have blindness, um, uh, what have you. So if the technology gets to that point, I think we have some interesting promise and some interesting opportunities. But as it is right now, where you just, you know, put on a glove or some goggles, and that's just not getting us where we need to go. And I, and I think that in some ways, it's just as much a challenge as when we shifted from the command line to a graphical user interface and how fundamentally that shift from a command line to something where there was just space and objects, it was really a setback for accessibility for a good chunk of time until we could you know, begin to make this new space accessible. So I think that there's some challenges down the road. And I think that the technology ends up ahead of the accessibility considerations for better or worse. And that it's just a matter of hopefully catching up where eventually we can make those, those new technologies after a few years more accessible. 
Yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, just the other day I was at a bar and, 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 and I had mentioned Jaws in passing and someone's like, oh, is that related to the Amazon web service? Like, no, 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 like <laughs> screen readers, I mean, you know, Jaws, I think being the first is, is way older than Amazon and I predates, uh, you know, GUIs, I believe, right? Um, is it, <laughs> am I correct in saying that? You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't really know off the top of my head when Jaws was first released, but it is. I mean, I do believe it is the oldest uh, screen reader still in use. I mean, I think there are there's some that have gone by the wayside over the years, but Jaws has been around for quite some time. Okay, and I guess uh, our our last question is: What recommendations would you would you give to someone who? you know, isn't in web development at all and is, you know, just trying to make sure that their online presence is more accessible. You know, someone who doesn't have a personal website or, you know, just is, and it's sort of on social media and, you know, sort of typical, you know, consumer behavior. Yeah. Um, so in that case, I guess I would, I would just ask, so do they have anything online or is, or is it really just a Facebook page and things like that? Is there yeah, and, and you know, Facebook, email, you know, texting, you know. Sure. Well, you know, and this is uh, this is perhaps dating me to to some extent. It it likely is, but I do tend to spell things out when I'm sending someone a text message because those acronyms, those abbreviations, they can end up very interesting if they are pronounced as a word or there's an attempt to pronounce them as a word. If you still really, really love them, you could always try to put spaces between the letters to have them at least spoken as individual letters when those are read aloud. But they can come across as some very interesting sounds if the attempt is made to, again, speak those. And I think punctuation is helpful because when a period is reached by something that is reading, uh, there there should be a pause at that moment. So it just helps to break up the information and makes it feel less like a stream of consciousness, verbal barrage or text barrage. I think that when you're when you're posting things online, if you have any access to setting alternatives for things like images, is there anything in the interface that allows you to specify what that photo represents. I think that's wonderful. We're, we're not at a point where I would trust anything automated to arrive at a good accessible description of a photo, at least not something that, is, you know, that you're going to find broadly available at this point. And so it really is incumbent upon the individual to take the time and say, how do I make what I'm creating accessible? Even outside of the web, if you're working on something in a text editor, maybe some sort of like a word processing program, if you can put headings, you know, if you can tag things as headings in there, that's really helpful because it gives a structure to the information that otherwise is just missing when all you're doing is just setting font sizes. When you're working in PowerPoint or whatever it is you're using for slides, can you go in and put in properties um, of objects and again provide that text alternative or even just for the document itself, can you put in some metadata that gives it some more context when people are are experiencing it. And so these software programs by default are usually not looking to help you with accessibility. It's gotten a bit better with time. I've noticed that the Office suite is prompting now for alt text in a way that it did not do previously uh, when an image is put in. But it is still a person still needs to take the time to write something meaningful 
and not just accept whatever default, which is something like alt equals graphical image, uh, which is not really helpful to anybody. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. And, and thank you so much for your time and hope to talk soon. Well, thank you for having me.